So let's generate our motivation and reflect a little bit on arrogance, as that's what we talked about last week. So how does arrogance interfere with us creating other virtuous actions? So let's say uh, somebody asks you to help with a project. Uh, One way arrogance could interfere is by thinking, I'm better than all the other people working on that project. I shouldn't have to do it. Yeah. It's, It's a pain in the neck. I am too good to do that kind of thing. So that could interfere. Or we could think, I'm better than all those people, and so I'm going to lead and take charge and tell them all what to do. So both of those are the arrogance that thinks that we're better than people who are equal or even people who are better than us. But we react to the arrogance in two ways. One way by not wanting to do the project, and the other one by doing it but wanting to take charge. Or we could have the arrogance of inferiority and think, I'm totally incapable, I can't do that. And so just turn away from even trying or helping. So if we look, there's so many different ways in which we can make the self more uh, important than others by being better than them, by being worse than them, by being proud of our virtue, being proud of our non-virtue. But all of it revolves around me. And all those thoughts really get in the way of engaging with others in a very open and honest and comfortable way. And they also interfere with our generosity and our helping of other people. And yet, yet when we look at arrogance and this inflation of the concept of I. Who is that I that we think is so good? Who is it? Point to it. Find it.
Who's the I that wants to be the leader and show off our abilities? Who's the I that thinks it's so bad that it can't even join the group? feels like there's an eye there, but when we search for exactly what it is, we can't find it in the body or in the mind. So it's really very foolish to be arrogant. So instead, let's cultivate an attitude of wanting self and others to be happy and to be free of suffering, and the aspiration to attain full Buddhahood to bring that about. Did you get some feeling about how ridiculous it is to be arrogant? You know, we're putting ourselves up, me, 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 and yet we can't even identify what that me is that we think is so spectacular that the world needs to know about. It's really foolish, isn't it? Okay, so whether we're thinking that we're better than others or worse than others, this whole exaggeration of the self. Yeah. Cuckoo. (laughs) Okay, so we've talked about attachment and anger and arrogance. This week, we're going to talk about ignorance. So His Holiness always starts out talking about it. 
saying even the word ignorance in Tibetan, it's marikpa. Rikpa means awareness, ma means not. Okay? So not aware. He says even the word sounds inauspicious. Yeah. And I don't know what the etymology of the English word is, but ignorance doesn't seem like something to boast about, does it? So ignorance is an afflictive state of unknowing brought about by the mind's lack of clarity regarding the nature of things such as the four truths, the three jewels, and karma and its effects. So this is a general definition of ignorance that fits the various Buddhist schools. Okay? Prasangika refines it, but this is the general one. Okay? So it's a state of unknowing, yeah, brought about by the mind's lack of clarity. What's it unclear about? The nature of things, like the four truths. So what are the four truths? And what is their nature? How do they function? The same with the three jewels. What are they? How do they function? What's their nature? And the same with karma and its effects. Okay, so ignorance functions as the basis and root of all other afflictions and the afflictive actions and rebirths they produce. So it's the source, it's the root uh, of the whole thing. Yeah, the whole dysfunction of samsara. So this is a general definition of ignorance accepted by all Buddhist tenant systems. However, each system has its own unique definition as well. Okay, so some systems assert an ignorance regarding just the person, specifically one's own I. Other systems a certain ignorance regarding the person and other phenomena, such as the aggregates, how they define what ignorance is, what it does, you know, how it misapprehends objects. There's differences in that between the, the different tenant systems as well. So furthermore, the meaning of ignorance differs according to the context. So here, so it's not just the tenant systems, it's also how you use the word. So some of, some of those meanings are explained below. Okay? And unless otherwise noted, they accord with the prasangika view, which may or may not be shared by others. But I think when I read through this, there might have been some that weren't particularly prasangika. So if you spot them, let's point them out, and then we'll note to correct them when they uh, republish the book. As we delve into the correct view of emptiness later in the series, the meanings of ignorance in the various schools will be clarified. 
So ignorance, avidya, is often but not always synonymous with confusion or moha. So ignorance, marigpa in Tibetan, avidya in Sanskrit, or um, the word moha in Sanskrit, or timug in Tibetan, sometimes they are synonymous, sometimes they aren't. And sometimes moha or timug is translated not as, as confusion, but as ignorance. Okay? So you have to be aware of the context and what's going on. And just because the term in English says ignorance, you have to double check if it is ignorance or confusion. Okay? And I think that's what happens in that quotation from, um, yes, yeah, the uh, quotation from um, uh, um, Precious Garland, where Nagarjuna says, attachment, anger, confusion, and the karma that arises from them are non-virtuous. I remember many years ago, Venerable Sangha Kadra and I having a big discussion about this. I don't know if you remember or not. Yeah, I remember it. Because the, the verse was translated attachment, anger, ignorance, and the karma that arises from them are non-virtuous. And we were saying ignorance, does ignorance mean grasping at true existence? Because if it means grasping at true existence, and that is non-virtuous, then we're, you know, how do we create any virtuous karma? Yeah. And so it, it took some time before uh, we, or at least I realized, <laughs> it, the, the t term was timug, and it should be confusion. Although confusion doesn't really express the, it, the meaning so well, because it's actually, you're ignorant. But it's an ignorance of cause, cause and effect, not an ignorance that grasps to existence. Okay, so remember sometimes the word confusion means ignorance. It doesn't, it could mean you could see how it's confusion in the sense that you don't know somebody is something, you're confused about how it exists, but sometimes it just means you're ignorant, not like you're, well, I'm confused, because confused can have the meaning of doubt, can't it? You know, the, it can imply doubt, where this uh, timug is definitely, uh, you're, you don't understand something. Okay, and it's the the whether you're talking about ignorance or confusion, we're talking about things like the four truths and spiritual objects and karma and the three jewels. We aren't talking about you know what who you voted for president and you know not anti-vaxxers and, you know, all the other people in society we think they are ignorant because they don't agree with our ideas, okay? We're not talking about that kind of ignorance, okay? It's, it's 
something important in terms of our uh, our spiritual well-being. Okay, so here's some different kinds of ignorance. So ignorance that is a mental factor. So that's the ignorance that is defined above. And like I said, that one applies to all the tenant systems. Not It's not particular to prasangika. Okay. Then the second is the ignorance of selfishness. So this um, is the meaning common to all Buddhist tenant systems. When we're talking about what prasangikas call the gross selflessness, what the other tenant systems call just ignorance about selflessness, okay? So this ignorance does not understand the selflessness of persons. So the one way that all of the tenant schools agree, yeah, what the selflessness of persons should be, it's the lack of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So this is the ignorance of that kind of selflessness. In other words, this ignorance is holding on to a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay, so that uh, you know is negating self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So that's an object of negation in common to all the tenant systems. But from the Prasangika viewpoint, it is a coarse object of negation for the selflessness of persons. Okay. Then the another kind of ignorance, or another way ignorance is spoken of, is ignorance of the ultimate truth. Okay. So this does not know the mode of existence of all persons and phenomena. So this me- meaning is accepted by the Chittamadra or Yogacharya and the Madhyamaka schools. So the lower schools talk about ultimate truth, but the way they define it, the, the Vaibhasakas and the Sautantrikas, it, it isn't about the mode of existence, the deeper mode of existence of persons and phenomena. They have a different meaning for ultimate truth. Yeah. Um, and how the Cheetah Madrans and Madhyamakas define the ignorance of ultimate truth. Again, those two schools differ, you know, because one, the, the Yogacharya Chita Madra says it's the ignorance that uh, doesn't, that holds that the subject and object of a cognition uh, comes from the same substantial cause, and the ignorance that holds that uh, that phenomena exists by their own characteristics as the referent of term and concepts. Whereas for prasangika, it's the ignorance that grasps the true existence. So they both call that the ignorance of ultimate truth, but what they define as ultimate truth is different. Yeah. Okay, so when this ignorance uh, gives rise to afflictions that produce karma, which in turn projects uh, rebirth in samsara, it is ignorance that is the first link of dependent origination. 
which is also number six in our list of ignorances. Okay? So often when we speak of ignorance, we're speaking of that first link. Yeah? Because it's the one that gives rise to the afflictions that give rise to the uh, propelling karma that causes a rebirth. And remember, not all karmas are propelling karmas. It has to have all four factors complete to be a propelling karma. Okay, so it's not just any kind of karma. So it's not just any moment of ignorance either. Then the fourth is ignorance of karma and its effects. And so this one underlies all destructive actions, especially those that lead to unfortunate rebirths. But, yeah, it also can lead, uh, uh, lie behind virtuous karma. Because even though we may not understand cause and effect, we uh, still may create virtuous karma. Okay? Uh, for example, uh, yeah, you just don't think about cause and effect, but you're a generous person. You know, you, you are generous, you keep some kind of ethical conduct. Yeah? Okay, so this ignorance is not simply not knowing about karma and its effects, okay, um, but is either strong disbelief in it or temporary disregard for it. So that implies that somebody must have been taught about karma and its effects and either dismissed it or has a temporary disregard for it. And I'm not so sure if that's the correct understanding of it. Of it. Maybe that should not be the implication we draw from this. Because uh, other people, it, it kind of implies that people have no set of uh, moral values at all. Yeah. Whereas everybody has some set of moral values. Okay. So everybody has some set from, you know, I don't know, Sunday school when you were a little kid or just from your parents bringing you up about, you know, if you do this, it's going to bring harm. If you do this, it's going to bring benefit. Yeah. So I don't think that it means an ignorance of how Buddhists explain karma and its effects. Yeah. Okay. Um, but still, you know, it could be because you, we meet people sometimes who hear about karma and they don't like the idea of karma. Yeah. They don't like it. It's like, um, yeah, it's like that mistake I told you about when I talked about karma at the University of Syracuse right after some of the students were killed in the Pan Am crash there. The people did not like the idea that their students, even in a previous life, had created some kind of negativity. 
and that they were experiencing the result of it. They just like, no. Okay, so that kind of attitude, disbelief in karma. So like I've recommended, when somebody is suffering and they say, why me? If they don't already believe in karma, that's not the time to explain it to them. Okay, if they have good fortune and they say, why me? Then you can talk about karma because they feel happy then. Okay. But it's very interesting. And it's what I find ex- incredibly interesting is how people will like or dislike the idea of karma based on how on other emotions and how the idea of karma makes them feel emotionally. Okay? So, uh, yeah, like the, um, you know, somebody once asked me, well, somebody once said, you know, oh, when, when you're suffering because somebody dies, Buddhism is not very comforting. Yeah? Uh, especially if somebody dies young because then, you know, you say, why did somebody die young? Well, because of an untimely karma that ripened. And then people get angry. Oh, how can my dear one, they're such a wonderful person. I love them so much. How could they have created some horrible karma like that in a past life that causes them to die young in this life? Buddhism is absolutely crazy, you know. So because it affects their emotional feeling for the person they love, then they don't like the idea. Okay? So you'll find this, you know, um, if, if you watch carefully, and that's why I often say first people decide what they believe, and then they find scriptural and logical support for it. Okay? So if you don't, if something about the idea of karma turns you the wrong way, yeah, like, uh, uh, you know, oh, I had so many problems in my childhood, you know, and oh, that comes from my negative karma. And then the people go, that means I was a bad person in my previous life. That means I deserve to suffer. So you see, they're completely misunderstanding the idea of karma and using it to beat themselves up and feel guilty. And then then they come out with, well, I don't believe that anyway. That's just outrageous, you know. How could how could you say I was a bad person in in my in in my past life because I I got beat up when I was two years old? A two-year-old is innocent. They didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. So don't tell me I'm a bad person because of my previous life. So these kind of misunderstandings, okay? And they're rampant. <laughs> yeah, these misunderstandings. Yeah, I mean, so many people misunderstand karma and think it means, oh, I'm a bad person, or I'm guilty, or I deserve to suffer. Yeah, and all these are completely not the idea of karma, you know. Some of them are are ideas that come from other religions, Okay, 
but they are not the Buddhist idea of uh, ethical conduct and the result of ethical conduct. Yeah, because from the Buddhist viewpoint, there is no external being who decides what is good and what is bad. It is just a natural law. And there is nobody from a Buddhist viewpoint that sends us to heaven or hell, nobody who manages the whole thing, nobody who we have to please and who will, you know, condemn us to, you know, eternal damnation if if we don't behave properly. So, you know, if you've grown up with that kind of idea, or even... It wasn't a strong idea, but it was somehow planted in your mind when you were a kid. Then it's easy for it to come up here and then think, oh, you know, I'm getting punished. And, you know, God is punishing me or Buddha is punishing me. And, you know, and that is not in Buddhism. There is no, Buddha does not punish us. Okay. Nobody punishes us. Yeah. You can really see how when you, when there's a religion that talks about reward and punishment, how it influences a, a society that is based on that religion and how it influences the justice system in that society. You know, so in this country, our justice system is so intent on punishment. You know, somebody did something wrong, you broke a law, you have to be punished, you know, as if you, the, the person who violated something by experiencing pain is going to reform themselves. Okay, now, if you remember when you were a kid and you got punished for something, yeah, you might have, out of fear, changed the way you acted. But did you ever change the way you thought or felt by being punished? No, we didn't, you know. And the key, you know, in a justice system to re rehabilitation is for somebody to change the way they think and feel, especially about themselves. Yeah? So you can see how damaging this notion of punishment and deserve to punish and should be punished and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know, which Gandhi said will make us all blind and toothless. Yeah? And how how that permeates Western culture in a really uh, unfortunate way, yeah, really unfortunate. So this ignorance cannot discern virtuous from non-virtuous actions. So that's one part of it, you know? It's like, what's virtuous? What's non-virtuous? Well, generosity is good. I want to give a gun to my friend. Yeah? 
say they don't understand the difference between virtue and non-virtue. Okay. Uh, Or this ignorance does not accept that happiness comes from virtuous actions and unhappiness comes from non-virtuous actions. So they don't know how to define virtue or non-virtue. Or even if they do know how to see it accurately, they don't believe that virtue leads to happiness and non-virtue leads to suffering. You know, they say, that's Sunday school stuff. Yeah? Who said that that was virtuous? Who said that it makes you happy? You know, it doesn't. You're talking about me being generous as being virtuous, but when I'm generous, I suffer a lot. I give things away, then I can't enjoy my life. This is, you know, terrible. What are you people talking about? Okay. Um, or, you know, we don't, under, we don't understand rebirth. We think that at the end of this life, uh, you're done. Your consciousness stops. So that there's no, eth- you know, there's no effects of our virtuous or non-virtuous actions. So you just kind of do what you want. As long as you don't get caught, there's not going to be any bad re- repercussions for non-virtue. Okay, I thought that way for a certain period when I was in college. Yeah, it was just, you know, I threw religion out altogether. I, you know, because I, I studied history and people are killing each other in the name of God. And I decided, you know, I, I didn't know anything about Buddhism, but, you know, religion is like, dings. It, it, it doesn't benefit sentient beings. I threw out religion. And and I said, okay, you know, at the at the end of this life, scientific approach, our brain dies, we cease. Yeah. So if we cease at the time of of death, then I give my myself permission to do certain actions that I was taught as a child not to do. There's not any bad effects for me, so why not do them? If, as long as nobody else finds out about it, and it doesn't really overtly help some, harm somebody. Some of the politicians brag about their non-virtue. Yeah, I mean, they're right out in front lying on CNN, lying on Fox News, and they're not at all ashamed of what they're saying or doing. Yeah, and they think that they're very clever. Yeah, and they say, it's for a good purpose so I can win the election. Yeah, but they don't want to win the election to serve the country and the people in the country. They want to win the election so they can keep their parking spot in D.C. <laughs> so they can be famous, so they can be powerful. Yeah? And they do it totally openly and blatantly, don't they? Don't they? You know, no... No feeling of integrity, no, no good kind of shame, nothing. 
Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't accept it. <laughs> yeah. So this is good idea. Not good idea, but um, you know, when the when the politicians say, you know, what I say is just skillful. I'm saying what the voters want. It doesn't matter that I'm not really going to act that way once I get elected. Yeah. Or, or, you know, lying about their qualification. Who knows what? Okay. But, um, you know, they can't discern virtue from non-virtue. It's, well, I wonder, you know, how many of them know that they would admit in private to somebody they trusted that they know they're lying? And how many of them think, don't even think that they're lying, they think it's skillful means. And how many of them don't think there's going to be any negative repercussions for what they're doing? I mean, there's, there's different ways to disbelieve in karma. And when you point to different people, it's like, well, which one is it that trips them up? Yeah. It's interesting to think about, you know. I won't give my opinions uh, on who's doing what, because this is on tape. What? Yeah, but it's interesting to think, you know. Do people have, are, is it ignorance, or is it some kind of mental illness, or social illness, you know? Yeah, of not understanding how our actions affect other Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, many ways to not believe in, in, in karma and its effects. Okay, so here's an example. For example, under the influence of this ignorance, we don't see the faults of engaging in business deals that deprive others of what is rightly theirs. Okay? We may generally believe in karma and its effects, but when given the opportunity for personal gain, we justify lying to obtain what we like. Okay, now how does this relate to uh, climate change? And to corporations, you know, how they think of their actions. Yeah. Do they think their actions are negative? Because uh, especially like in Louisiana, you know, the oil companies just dumping toxins into the water and uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Do they think that that is a harmful action? the people in the companies who make that decision? Or do they know it's harmful, but they really don't care as long as it doesn't affect them? Or do they, you know, do they think, well, it's harmful, but trying to not pollute, just we won't make any profit that way. So we've got to do it, you know. The market economy is forcing us to do it, right? You know, so it's it's interesting, you know. Yeah, how do cor people who run corporations think? And do they have a different set of ethical values 
for ha- in their family and their private life as in their in their uh, corporate life? Do they teach how many parents act consistent with their with what they teach their kids? Do they teach their kids one thing and in their work life they do another? You know, you teach your kids not to lie. You go to work and you lie. And you fill out, you know, tax forms, uh, different policies. You lie, no problem. Yeah, and then you tell your kids not to lie. Okay. Another thing that my my mother used to say was, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, so what's the subtext to that? Okay. So, number five for ignorance. Ignorance that is one of the three poisons of ignorance, attachment, and animosity. So the three poisons, that's the, uh, here it's translated as ignorance, attachment, and animosity, but it's the same words that we saw in the Nagarjuna quote of attachment, anger, and confusion. Those are the three poisons. Okay, so those three poisons, so that ignorance or confusion is one of the three basic factors spurring the creation of destructive karma. Okay. This is ignorance of karma and its effects. Often translated as confusion, it accompanies all virtue not it, it accompanies all non-virtuous mental states and is a cause of unfortunate rebirths. Okay. So ignorance grasping true existence can underlie both virtuous and non-virtuous mental states, but confusion as one or ignorance as one of the three poisons only underlies non-virtuous mental states. Yeah, timug when it's one of the three poisons. When timug is just means uh, you know, the regular ignorance, the grass and inherent existence, then it, it could underlie the virtu- virtuous karma too. Okay, then six is ignorance that is the first link of dependent origination. So it starts a new set of 12 links that leads to rebirth in samsara. So tenant systems have different assertions about this ignorance. Yeah, what it is. Yeah. According to the Prasangikas, it grasps our own I and mine as inherently existence, inherently existent, which is based on grasping our aggregates as inherently existent. For the other schools, the the first link ignorance is grasping to a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So it's quite different. Okay. Although this, the Svatantrika Vanyamakas will, will say that, yeah, that the first link ignorance is, 
is the grasping, self-sufficient, substantial existent person. But the actual root of samsara is um, grasping the inherent existence of phenomena. Yeah, so maybe that one would be the root of samsara. Huh? Yeah, true existence. Right, yeah. So it's the grasping of true existence that's the root of samsara. Would they say uh, first link ignorance is is that grasping too, or it's, it's grasping self-sufficient, substantial existent person? First Vitantrakas. Okay, I'll go on while she checks it. <laughs> Thinks it. Okay, so th- th- this ignorance is not all ignorance. It's only the ignorance that starts a new set of 12 links. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then seven is self-grasping ignorance. So it grasps persons and phenomena as inherently existent. So this is unique to Prasangika. It first grasps the aggregates as inherently existent, and on that basis grasps the person to be inherently existent. Self-grasping ignorance is synonymous with ignorance, is synonymous with ignorance grasping inherent existence, ignorance grasping true existence, this is according to Prasangika's, ignorance grasping things to exist from their own side, and so on. Okay. Sometimes when used loosely, uh, self-grasping ignorance may refer to grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Sometimes it, it can be used in a general way, but usually it's grasping at inherent existence. For the Yogacharas, Vatantrika, Madhyamikas, um, the grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person is both the root of cyclic existence and the first of the 12 links. Because that's the only thing you have to get rid of to get out of samsara. Right. And yeah, so then it would be the same also for the satantrakas, vatantrakas. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that would be first link. And the root of samsara is the grasping at true existence. Grasping at a self-sufficient, substantial existent person is both the first link and the root of samsara. Samsara. But then, oh no, I know what it is. Grasping at true existence is the final root. Yeah, they make a difference in there. Yeah, it's the final root of samsara. Yeah. Okay, then eight, um, ignorance of the four distorted conceptions, okay, or the four kinds of inappropriate attention. So this ignorance grasps the impermanent as permanent, that which is dukkha by nature as pleasurable, the unattractive as beautiful, and that which lacks a self as halfing one. So this description is accepted by all tenant systems. So when it's seen as accepted by all tenant systems, then 
uh, holding something which lacks a self as having one is talking about self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay? But it seems to me that the grasping the impermanent as permanent from the prasangika view uh, could be a subtle affliction, not a coarse one, and an, uh, and an innate affliction. But I've asked about this many times, and it's not always clear. Okay, anyway, we'll just read what's in the book, and we won't ask questions that we can't answer. <laughs> Do you know anything about that? About uh, holding the impermanent as, as permanent from the prasangika viewpoint? Is that innate? I would think that would be innate. But then innate versus artificial is different than coarse versus um, subtle. Okay, the nine is in the Pali tradition, ignorance is explained as not knowing the four truths. In other words, the aggregates, the polluted aggregates, their origin, cessation, and the way to that cessation. So not knowing the four truths, past and future lives, and dependent origination, which means the 12 links for them. In specific contexts, it is described as not knowing the impermanent nature of the aggregates, specifically, not understanding the gratification, danger, and escape with respect to the five aggregates, and so forth. Let's see what the note says. So gratification is the pleasure experienced by contact with the aggregates, Danger is the decay of the aggregates that leaves us disappointed. And escape is giving up desire for the aggregates, wisely freeing ourselves from the afflictions that bind us to dukkha. Okay. So the, this set of gratification, danger, and escape, it comes often in the um, Pali Suttas. Okay. Okay, so that's how they, they talk about ignorance. So Vasubandhu states that ignorance, the first one, okay, that is the mental factor, accompanies all afflictions. Oops, let's go back here. So a primary consciousness has seven several mental factors that accompany or are concomitant with it, meaning that they share five similarities. They have the same basis, the same observed object, the same aspect, the same time, and the same entity. In this case, ignorance is a mental factor accompanying the primary mental consciousness and thus shares these five similarities with it. Okay, so if you remember from the low rig teachings, the five similarities and how you have a primary consciousness and then you have many other mental factors, at least the five omnipresent, often more than that, you know, that are one nature with, with that primary consciousness. Yeah. 
Okay. And so if one of those mental factors is non-virtuous, it makes the whole consciousness non-virtuous. If one of them is virtuous, it makes the whole consciousness virtuous. Okay. Okay. So the Prasangikas assert that self-grasping ignorance provokes coarse afflictions, but does not accompany them because the two have different functions. Okay, so self-grasping ignorance grasps the, uh, its object as inherently existent, while attachment craves an object seen as attractive and desirable. So the way it's ex- explained by Vasubandhu is you have ignorance first, that's manifest in your mind. Then you have attachment. So those are two different minds. First one with ignorance, and ignorant that ignorance, you know, that grasps to existence, that is neutral. It's not non-virtuous. But it can give rise to clinging attachment, which is non-virtuous. They're two different consciousnesses, yeah? So you can see how they grasp their object is different. That self-grasping ignorance holds the object to be truly existent. Attachment uh, craves it because it sees it as desirable and attractive. Okay, so self-grasping ignorance arises first and attachment follows. Because they perform different functions and do not occur at the same time, prasangikas say self-grasping ignorance and attachment do not share the same primary mind and do not accompany each other. However, okay, the prasangikas say that self-grasping ignorance can accompany subtle afflictions because subtle attachment and anger have an element of grasping phenomena as inherently existent, okay? In that, subtle attachment grasps its objects as inherently desirable and craves to possess it. So this is a different explanation than the lower schools, yeah? The lower schools just say attachment uh, sees, you know, sees the object as attractive and desirable. And Prasangikas say that the attachment grasps the object as inherently attractive and desirable and, you know, seeks to possess it. Subtle anger grasps its anger, its object as inherently undesirable and craves to be separated from it. These subtle afflictions are obstacles to attaining nirvana, but do not necessarily hinder having a good rebirth. Okay. Maybe this is like the attachment in the form realm which is that attachment's not non-virtuous. I'm trying to think of an example. Yeah. So the lower schools do not consider subtle afflictions to prevent liberation because they assert inherent existence. 
So they say the grasping at inherent existence is not the cause of samsara. Okay, according to Prasangika's ignorance, in other words, number three and number seven, number three is the ignorance of the ultimate truth, number seven is self-grasping ignorance. Okay, that, those two ignorances, grasp persons and phenomena as inherently existent. Grasping the self as self-sufficient and substantially existent is a form of ignorance, but it is not the ignorance that is the root of samsara, according to Prasangikas. The ignorance grasping inherent existence arises first, followed by the ignorance grasping the self as self-sufficient, substantially existent. So the former ignorance grasping inherent existence does not accompany the ignorance grasping self-sufficient, substantially existent because their mode of grasping their object uh, differs, okay? And they don't occur simultaneously. So it's the same thing as like with attachment. The former, the, the ignorance grasping inherent existence Gra oh, yeah, the former grasps the self to be inherently existent. The latter grasps the self to be self-sufficient, substantially existent. So first you have one, then you have a different primary mental consciousness with the, uh, with the grasping at self-sufficient, substantially existent. Okay. Similarly, in cases when grasping a self-sufficient, substantially existent person causes anger to arise, it does not accompany anger due to the different ways these mental factors grasp their object. Yeah. So according to Prasangikas, as I understand it, you know, we uh, can have grasping inherent existence, grasping self-sufficient, substantial existence, and then grasping attachment. So that, or, or, and then have attachment. But that attachment is the attachment that arises out of grasping self-sufficient, substantially existent person, which arose out of grasping an inherently existent person. But those three consciousnesses occur sequentially, yeah, as I understand it. Okay, then, technically speaking, self-grasping ignorance and self-grasping are not the same. Well, I often hear these two terms, self-grasping ignorance and self-grasping. So it's one of those things where different people will use the same term in different ways. So self-grasping ignorance refers to the uh, mental factor of ignorance that grasps inherent existence, while self-grasping refers to the entire mental state, the primary consciousness and its accompanying mental factors that include self-grasping ignorance. Okay, so this is getting technical about the meaning of self-grasping ignorance and self-grasping. In other words, when ignorance grasping inherent existence accompanies a mental state, all aspects of that mental state grasp inherent existence. So they all become self-grasping, okay. However, 
Sometimes self-grasping and self-grasping ignorance are used interchangeably. So even though we just got that description of how they're different, sometimes some people use them interchangeably. In this case, the speaker's purpose is not to distinguish the mental factor of self-grasping ignorance from the entire mental state, but their purpose is to identify inherent existence and how we grasp objects and people to exist in that way. Okay. As you can see, the topic of ignorance is complex and we need a lot of wisdom to understand it. Duh. Yeah. If it were easy, we would have understood it a long time ago and it would have not be the root of cyclic existence. Could you explain uh, what is the difference between subtle and coarse afflictions and then how could the lower schools believe that the presence of an affliction would not prevent liberation, a subtle affliction? Um, okay, subtle and coarse afflictions. So the, the lower schools don't divide it into subtle and coarse. The prasangika do. And the prasangika, in general, in general, yeah, would call uh, the, the grasping at inherent existence, that ignorance, as subtle, and the ignorance grasping a self-sufficient, substantial existent person as gross or as coarse. Okay. This earlier, and it comes up for me again when I read this thing that Vasubandhu said, and then all the explanations that are different. And what kept coming to my mind was the Aryadeva quote that His Holiness says again and again and again, mm -hmm. like the body sense uh, pervades all consciousnesses, yeah. ignorance pervades all affective emotions. Yeah. Well, Vasubandhu isn't Prasangika. I know, but this is an Aryadeva quote. Yeah. So, so what I'm, what I'm, what I was confused about was how is what Aryadeva is saying oh. different from what Vasubandhu is asserting? Okay. Because Aryadeva, when it says pervading, it doesn't mean that it's there manifest in all the afflictions. Yeah, it means it lies behind the afflictions, all of them. Vasubandhu yeah. only says the first sentence, but the rest of it is prasangika, not Vasubandhu. Yeah. It seems like when you have even gross attachment, you're project. well, you're imputing something onto the object or um, exaggeration. And mm -hmm. it seems like that exaggeration is a certain level of ignorance. Where uh, does that, that fall? That exaggeration is that mental factor of inappropriate attention or distorted conceptualization. But there's some level of ignorance there that we believe that's there. Like, like we, believe, we believe that object has that um, quality that it doesn't have. That seems like a level of ignorance. Yeah, but here it's, it's in terms of when it's the, the, the coarse kind of ignorance, the attachment sees the object as desirable and attractive. What underlies that seeing 
is the grasping at, at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person grasping an inherent existence. But those two are not manifest at that moment. But the ignorance didn't come out of nowhere. It came supported with those two things before it. Okay? So it seems to me it's like the hangover effect. Yeah. But it, it just shows you don't just start with ignorance. Yeah? You have to have, I mean, you don't just start with attachment. You have to have the, the ignorance behind it. And then, and because the ang the ignorance is grasping the object as inherently existent, but then what happens is, instead of doing this, yeah, it passes on. This kind of gives way to, yeah, the exaggeration, and that gives way to you know it's desirable and attractive, and I want it. It's really hard to tell to tell all these mental factors apart, you know. Even though they explain uh, the sequence, yeah, it's it's very difficult. To, but to I'm see. seeing in there is there's some level of ignorance about what's going to bring happiness. I think if that. I'm going to be yeah. happy if I get that piece of cake. Okay, and, but and here we're not talking about that kind of ignorance. Here we're talking about ignorance, misapprehending how the object exists. Right, but I'm... I'm You're talking about the ignorance, uh, you know, of, of, yeah, that object's going to make me happy. But that's, that's a totally different kind of ignorance than grasping the object as inherently existent. It is, but we're, there's, there's so, this long list of, of ignorances, and I'm trying to figure out where this would fall, because oh. it seems like that ignorance of thinking that object's going to bring that, me happiness is... It, it, that one would fall under the ignorance of the four distortions, okay? When we're seeing something that uh, by nature is dukkha as pleasurable, that's where it would go. Many different ways to be ignorant, huh? And we think... Our ignorance is so clever and that we're so smart when we're under its influence. Yeah? Should we go on to deluded doubt? <laughs> Are you done with ignorance? Deluded doubt doesn't sound nearly as difficult, huh? It has its own problems, though. <laughs> Okay, so notice it says deluded doubt or afflictive doubt. So it's not all doubt. This doubt is in particular the doubt that goes towards the, the wrong way of seeing things. So deluded doubt is a mental factor that is indecisive and wavers towards an incorrect conclusion concerning important spiritual topics, such as the ultimate nature of phenomena, the four truths, the three jewels, and karma and its effects. So it's not the doubt of, should I get ginger snaps or, or chocolate chip cookies? Okay, it's not that doubt. 
Yeah. And it's not the doubt of, you know, should I tell my friend this or should I not tell my friend that? Okay. So keeping us in a constant state of uncertainty about what we believe, which path to follow, and what to practice, diluted doubt immobilizes and prevents us from going forward spiritually. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit, how that works. And here you begin to see, you know, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I usually think of it's the emotions that create the negative karma. But here you can see, uh, you know, diluted doubt is not an emotion. Yeah, it's a kind of view. But here you can see that views can re, they are very important because they can totally, totally steer us in the wrong direction. Okay. So if you have the view, like you were just saying, that having a ton of money is going to make you secure, and so that makes you uh, very attached to money, and then you start stealing, and, you know, on your time card, you you click in more hours than you really were there, or you overcharge somebody, something like that. Um you know, that's due to a, a wrong view. It's, I mean, it's emotion of the, the, of attachment, but it's the thing that's giving that legitimacy is the, is a wrong view. So similarly, doubt, you know, when we're uncertain about what we believe, yeah, then we very easily go down the wrong path. Yeah. So this is like, uh, and you find it so much. And you can't blame people, you know. They come and, you know, you look at the, at the New Age newspaper and you find something that looks really good, yeah. And they tell you something and it looks really good, you know. Oh, like they give you some vision of version of karma that you always are going up and up and up in your rebirths. Okay, so you're always getting wiser, wiser. You know, you never uh, have have lower rebirth again. Or, uh, oh, what is it? Um, prosperity gospel. Yeah, it's um, you know, if if you uh, if you behave properly according to the Bible, you will be rich. Yeah, and you will be famous and. Uh, you'll have all worldly happiness. Yeah. So what it does is it feeds people's notion, not that, um, not that like generosity and kindness are good values, but you can, you know, you can be religious, you know, as long as you claim you believe such and such, then you will be rich and famous and da da da. Yeah, it doesn't matter so much how you behave. You just have to say you believe. But, you know, so people hear one thing, and then they hear another thing. Yeah. So you go, you know, one day you go to, uh, uh, I don't know what, you know, Kabbalah, and second day you go to crystals, and third day you go to Buddhism, 
and fourth day you go to uh, Sufi, and fifth day you you know you go to what else do you go to? What? Oh yeah, you go to some ashram. You go to Charlatananda's ashram, and that was which the fifth day, the sixth day. Then the sixth day, you um, Wiccan. Yeah, you go to Wiccan, and the seventh day you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The seventh day you rest. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, you know, so people get totally confused because whatever somebody tells them, it sounds good and they believe it. And then the next person tells them something different and they believe that, you know, because they're not used to really thinking critically. Or they think so critically that they don't believe anything except their own ideas and their own opinions. So that's a problem, too, because that's not actually thinking critically. It's a, Well, it's critical thinking, but not the same meaning as critical. It's a different kind of meaning of critical, okay? So you criticize everything. Yeah. So you can really see that, you know, when people are not sure about what they really believe philosophically, it, they, it can really mess them up about how they live their life. Yeah. And so, so you, um, you know, we, we see this a lot. Sometimes um, uh, people get what we call ordination fever. Okay, you know ordination fever. Anybody here had it? Yeah, yeah, I had it too. But uh, but I I I had the right view. I did something right, you know. I was yeah. You did too. You got ordained. But you know, some people it's just ordination feel. I've got to get ordained. You know, it's like this Lama walked in the room and I got chills and I know I'm a Buddhist. And, uh, you know, I got to get ordained as soon as possible. And, uh, and uh, you know, you ask them, do you believe in, in karma? Oh, sure, I believe in karma. Well, what's your idea of karma? Uh, it just means it's kind of like fate. It's your karma, you know. So it means fate. It means, yeah. Well, no, it doesn't mean fate. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you have people that they're not really sure what they believe because they've heard so many different things and they don't know how to think about it and actually figure out what makes sense. So this is why His Holiness is always stressing logic and reasoning, okay? So that, and always telling us, really think about what you hear. Don't just believe it because Buddha said so. Yeah, yeah. Um, because sometimes even what Buddha said, he will say different things to different people according to their disposition and their need at that particular time. So you have to have some kind of uh, critical wisdom 
to discern, you know, what the Buddha meant when he said a certain thing. Like he said to Ajatasastra, 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 anyway, that guy, the one who killed his father, King Bimbasara. And the Buddha said, and he killed his mother too, yeah? And And the Buddha said to him, you should kill your mother and father. Now, do you think that that's to be taken literally? That that's really what the Buddha meant? You know, that, he, that yeah, sure, Ajatasastra, you went and you knocked off your two parents. No problem. You know, of course that's not what the Buddha meant. Okay. What he meant was he was talking about two of the links of dependent arising. I think ignorance and craving or do you remember which two it was craving and and renewed existence karma and well no it was two specific links anyway it had to do or it could be karma and afflictions it had to do with that that's what he was talking about killing you know and but he said your mother and father because jadasastra was so aggrieved once he realized, you know, the horrible action that he did, that he he couldn't think straight. He was so, like, out of his mind with grief. So the Buddha said that to comfort him. And then when he calmed down, then the Buddha kind of started explaining, here's how you do a 100,000 prostrations, you know, you need to do some purification about this. Okay. So um, deluded doubt can can uh, make us really make very bad decisions you know, when we're not sure about things. And then just regular doubt, we see, you know, people will just sit there and like, yeah, we had this skit one time uh, at the Abbey about the turkeys sitting on the fence, yeah, and they were people trying to decide whether to ordain or not. Oh, I could be a lay person. That has many good aspects. Or I could ordain. That's really nice, too. Or I could be a lay person. You know, maybe I want to get married. Oh, no, I don't want to get married. But I want to be a monastic. Then I can sit in the front row. Oh, but that isn't such a good motivation. Uh, yeah, I want to become Buddha for the benefit of sentient beings. Uh, but then also it's, it would be nice to be a lay person. Or maybe I can put two of them together. I see like all these people who, you know, kind of, yeah, samsara and nirvana. They say samsara and nirvana are equal. Yeah, there's a scriptural quotation saying that. So they're equal, so I can have both of them. Okay, so, you know, you're a turkey sitting on the fence, and Thanksgiving is coming real quickly. Are you going to go to safety, or are you going to jump into the pot? Yeah? Or are you going to sit on the fence? If you're a turkey, and you sit on the fence, and you don't make a decision, they're going to grab you and throw you in the cooking pot. Okay? So it's, it's, yeah, this kind of doubt can, can be deadly. So doubting ourselves, the path, the result, 
Yeah. We spin in circles. We ruminate. Yeah. We chew our cud. <laughs> yeah. We spin in circles and spend days, months, and years stuck in indecision. Yeah? Should I be a Buddhist? Should I be a whatever you used to be before? Whatever your lover is? You know, you change religions according to who you're dating. Yeah? Okay. But doubting ourselves is a big one, you know? It's like, I'm just, you know, I can't do it. Mm. Okay. Doubting the path. Does this path work? How do I know it works? Doubting the result. Is enlightenment possible? Oh, it looks, it's fairy tale. Fairy tale. And thinking that I'm going to lead all sentient beings to enlightenment, that's just arrogance. You know, I'm not buying that one. Okay. So people, yeah. So, Deluded doubt and wrong views are different. Wrong views, you've made up your mind. You don't believe that or you believe X, Y, Z. Deluded doubt is, I don't really know, but I'm inclined towards the wrong decision. Then there's the doubt in the middle. I don't know. It's kind of 50-50. And then there's doubt inclined towards the good decision or the, the, the good view. That's a different kind of doubt. Okay, deluded doubt is compared to trying to sew with a two-pointed needle. Yeah, get a vision. You're holding a two-pointed needle and you're trying to sew. What happens? Yeah, you get really frustrated (laughs) because you can't sew. You can't do anything. Okay, you can't sew with a new pointed needle, so we accomplish nothing. So this deluded doubt has only an acquired form, not an innate form. Okay, so it's acquired from learning bad philosophies and psychologies. Deluded doubt differs from doubt inclined towards the correct conclusion or doubt wavering in the middle. It differs from curiosity. Yeah, curiosity is good. Yeah, curiosity inspires us to learn and to think about things. Okay, so it differs from curiosity, which propels us to ask questions and learn more until we come to a sound conclusion. Okay, then the reflection. So so this is your homework. Review each of the five afflictions above one by one and think of at least three instances when each affliction has arisen in your mind. It should not be difficult. (laughs) Yeah. And two, what were the bare facts of the situation that sparked that uh, affliction? 
What did distorted attention add to these bare facts? For example, by imputing qualities onto the object or the person. Three, what effect did that affliction have on your mind? And how did it influence your deeds and your words? And four, which, which Dharma points or teachings would help you to subdue that affliction? So know what to practice when each of the, those five afflictions manifests in your mind. Any questions from online? Uh, how or when did ignorance and afflictive stains arise in a mind of a sentient being obscuring Buddha nature? Uh, they're, they're beginningless. There was no original uh, moment where they entered the mind stream. That's it. Okay, then let's dedicate. And next week, we'll go on to afflictive views.